Welcome back to my series of podcasts about the history of British psychiatry since the time of the Renaissance. I'm Rab Houston and I'm Professor of Modern History at the University of St Andrews in Scotland. We're on the fourth block or section of podcasts and that block is designed to answer the question how did therapies for mental disorders change over the 500 years since the Renaissance? Today's podcast is the second in that block and it's called Moral Therapy and the Origins of Psychological Treatment. Now the therapies I outlined last week are all physical. In other words, they touch the body. And indeed, I've used a drawing of the spinning chair I talked about last time as an illustration for this week's podcast. The spinning, or what uh, William Halloran called the circulating chair, was designed to uh, disorient people with mental problems and therefore allow them to reorientate themselves, hopefully in a more sane way. Now, somatic treatments like that dominated 16th and 17th century care. One important change was a greater role for psychological treatments in more recent centuries. Those psychological treatments were called moral therapy by 18th century writers. And moral therapy drew on the associational theory of physician and philosopher John Locke. You might recall his disarmingly simple definition of madness from the very first podcast in this series. Writing at the end of the 17th century, Locke profoundly disagreed with Descartes, who was also the subject of an earlier podcast. Descartes suggested in the early 17th century that the human mind carried a God-given code. Locke argued instead that people were the product of their environment and their upbringing. His approach was profoundly optimistic. It offered an approach to psychology which meant that people could be improved by education. And that improvability of mankind is a key concept of the 18th century intellectual movement that we know as the Enlightenment. For their part, the mad, who, if you remember Locke, had simply misassociated ideas, could be brought back to sanity by a carefully constructed program of re-education in an appropriate setting. What was known in the 18th century as the madhouse and what came to be known in the early 19th century as the asylum, what we now call mental hospitals or psychiatric hospitals. So with this re-education, mad people could internalize the, the desirable values of normality and learn to abandon the harmful thoughts and behavior that had brought them to mad doctors and mad houses in the first place. In the correct setting, and with the help of what we would nowadays call intensive psychological counselling, mental health could indeed be restored. 
A nice statement of moral therapy comes from an 18th century practitioner. He was Thomas Bakewell and he kept a private madhouse in Staffordshire during the late Georgian era. Bakewell wrote, Authority and order must be upheld, but this is better done by kindness, agreement and indulgence than by any severities whatsoever. Lunatics are not devoid of understanding, nor should they be treated as if they were. They are rational beings. So Bakewell opposed devices like Halloran's circulating chair. He opposed the use of threats and he opposed um, anything which wasn't in tune with his approach, his moral therapy approach, which was based on kindness and on talking. Halloran, uh, Bakewell was um, an important figure in the development of moral therapy, but its most famous location was the York Retreat, which was a small asylum founded by a chap called William Tuke and the Society of Friends, also known as the Quakers. It was opened in 1796. The emphasis at the, the retreat was on psychological therapy and on self-restraint, rather than physical treatments and mechanical restraint by means of manacles or straitjackets. Now, moral therapy has received a lot of attention from historians of psychiatry, and I think you could probably guess the, the reason immediately. It's because it looks like the precursor of modern psychotherapy. But we need to be a little careful here. For one thing, it wasn't new. What contemporaries called in the early modern period spiritual physic and what we might call practical divinity had for centuries been a standard tool used by ministers of religion faced with those concerned specifically about their salvation and generally about their state of mind. Thus, the master or head of Bethel Hospital Norwich, founded in 1713 to care for lunatics, had to be, and I quote, a man that lives in the fear of God and sets up true Protestant religion in his family and will have a due regard as well to souls as bodies of those that are under his care. So medicine supplemented and indeed often emerged out of prayer. The radical divide between science and religion, which I think we currently take for granted in the West, was only created in the second half of the 19th century. Indeed, many early 19th century asylums had resident chaplains before they had resident physicians. Tudor England probably only had a few hundred physicians, surgeons and apothecaries who you might class as the medical professionals of the early modern era. Almost all of them lived and worked in towns, which in those days housed less than 10% of the population. 
By contrast, England had nearly 10,000 parishes, each with an Anglican clergyman who was a councillor, advisor, arbitrator, and sometimes even a magistrate, as well as a minister of religion. Religion was a central part of life, and the parish priest was probably the first resort for many of those who felt troubled in mind. Sufferers often expressed their mental turmoil as a kind of spiritual struggle, so it was quite natural to talk to a clergyman. For Catholics, who formed the majority of Irish people, there was also the formal consultation of the confessional. From the end of the 17th century, many Protestant sects started splitting off from the Church of England, and that meant more nonconformist clergy. These nonconformist clergy, in other words, they didn't conform to the rights of the Church of England, could cater to the particular problems faced by Quakers and Methodists, to take just two prominent examples. In practice, too, moral therapy was often the niche of clergy, private madhouse keepers like Bakewell, and physicians who took an interest in counselling certain classes of patient. In the 19th century, a prominent example was John Connolly, physician superintendent at Hanwell Asylum in Middlesex. Connolly was opposed to mechanical restraints and he was a strong advocate of moral therapy. But it's worthwhile pointing out that his vision and his clientele was largely a middle class one. Uh, for example, it featured a library, the asylum featured a library, a piano, flower beds, carpets, games of skittles and organised ladies tea parties. These are not the sort of things that the working classes were engaged in. That niche element is important because moral therapy was not widely practised, probably much less so than spiritual physic. The reason is that it was time-consuming, even in an age when people were more time-rich than we are now. Moral therapy needed staff, and it needed money to maintain a benign environment. It probably worked best in a quasi-domestic setting with just a few lunatics. Now most 19th century medical practitioners instead adopted an eclectic approach to therapies. Some of them dabbled in moral therapy, many continued to give considerable weight to treating the body, in other words to physical therapies. They persisted in using methods which reflected the enduring importance of classical Greek humoral theory. Where staff to patient ratios were low and attendants hard pressed, mechanical restraint by straitjacket or manacles also retained an important practical purpose. Now, I'm not denying here that broadly psychological therapies developed during the 19th century and some of them are ingenious and innovative. One pioneer in the 1840s was someone I mentioned already, 
Dr. W. A. F. Brown. He actively encouraged art, music and literature as therapies for people with mental illnesses. Brown compiled, in what he called three gigantic volumes, the work of dozens of what he called lunatics in different forms and phases of derangement. People he treated at Crichton Royal Institution, just outside Dumfries. Only one volume now survives, uh, containing 134 works of art by, I think, about 15 or so male and female patients. Brown labelled the collection Art in Madness. Drama, too, could be a therapeutic tool. It was in some 19th century asylums. Probably the most famous example in recent years was the partnership between Dr Murray Cox, who is or was the consultant psychotherapist at Broad Broadmoor High Security Psychiatric Hospital, and the actor Mark Rylance. Together they staged some Shakespeare plays at Broadmoor Hospital. Back in the 19th century, recreational therapy like this was available for middle-class patients. Occupational therapy, such as gardening or housework, was for the lower classes of patient, who would have been used to manual labour in their lives outside the asylum. Recreation and work rewarded the patient, offered a chance for self-therapy, and gave a signal that he or she had sufficient reason to focus on a task, or to formulate images, or to connect words by writing poetry or po prose. These were pathways to, and indicators of, mental no normality. Now all of these, I'm sure you'll agree, seem to us enlightened and forward-looking treatments. But again, let's not get carried away. Brown's experiments were successful partly because the Crichton's patients, the Crichton Royal Institution's patients, were middling and upper class. 19th and early 20th century therapies normally tended towards the physical and even the surgical, especially where poorer patients were involved. And bear that in mind next time when some of the theories you'll hear about are certainly modern, and they're in some senses even more modern than moral therapy, but you might want to ask yourself if they really represented progress. Tell me next time.